Hey there, Life Fullness podcast listeners. I uh, hope you're great. Uh, if you uh, listen regularly, you know what this is. But if this is your first time uh, on the Life Fullness podcast, me, Sanderson, and my co-host, James, we interview some of the most remarkable people on the planet about the most important topics of the day. We've got a bit of a unique perspective in the both James and I we run non-religious congregations. We're two atheists who are building communities which look a lot like church, but without the God bit. That means we've got a bit of a unique perspective where we're you know, always looking to see what we can learn from religion and how uh, we can combine that with modern day science and research of all types. So uh, today we've got an awesome guest and his name is Vikas Shah. He is a businessman with a unique tale because about 14 years ago, he thought it would be quite interesting to try to go and interview the most uh, remarkable people on the planet. And he really did. He's interviewed Mark Cuban, Maya Angelou, Noam Chomsky, F.C. de Klerk, Nile Rogers, Ai Weiwei. And as he says in the podcast, it really is a side project which got out of hand and got him one-on-one with these truly incredible people. Uh, the conversation's great. He's an amazing guest. The three... Well, I guess one of the one thing he said right at the start was you don't need to find your purpose to have a purposeful life. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. Uh, he then recounts meeting a Holocaust survivor and their reaction uh, to the Holocaust and their attitude towards their guards like blew my mind. And then at the end, uh, I used one of his interview techniques against him and that ended up leading to this amazing conversation about death and life and you know that's really what this whole podcast is about you know making the most of life because we're not here for very terribly long. Gonna get uh, get on in a moment uh, but I really want to say thanks so much to everyone who came to the first Lifefulness podcast live streams. We're starting to live stream these recordings. You can go and find out more details on our website. It was really great because at the end of the recording we then got to have a discussion about what the topics which came up. So that's a new thing we're doing. Go and check it out on the site. And uh, yeah, here's the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. It's obviously me here, the beardy weirdy uh, supreme lifefulness uh, number one, numero uno uh, man on this uh, <laughs> podcast whose name is Sanderson Jones. I had to go and put Sanderson Jones on the end there because I suddenly thought it was a big, huge alpha male flex, which isn't my style. Yeah, uh, a bit, and a bit embarrassing. Uh, and I'm joined by uh, the, the wonderful James, co-host extraordinaire. How's it going, man? I am doing great thank you thank That's you for asking good to hear and we have an amazing guest vikas shah who Hi, is everyone. there we go uh, who's going to get his chance to shine soon uh, entrepreneur sort of from a very early age has gone and done great things but we're particularly delighted to welcome you because you are the creator of this blog and now a book called thought economics where you have interviewed just remarkable people I, I i mean we're just gonna go buzz aldrin noam chomsky uh bear grills fw leclerc uh that i'm just looking at them now there's uh, ac grayling anish kapoor peter tatchell ariana huffington you have somehow interviewed everyone and uh and that's it's almost a side project to your whole life 
it's literally a side hustle that went horribly rogue and turned into something really remarkable. <laughs> but particularly as someone who books guests for podcasts and VCAS, whilst I do not like I loved your book and I, when I saw it coming out, I really wanted to speak to you. But like, I know how hard it is to book people and what I, we're going to get into that. Who like how much of your soul did you sell? Uh, but before we get into your amazing story, we want to ask you the two questions which we ask our, all our guests, which is uh, the first one, what was the religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? So I was brought up in a, in a, in a Hindu household and went to a, a kind of Christian school, which was, which was always a tussle, um, especially because the school that I went to was, was, was very Christian and I was one of their earliest experiences of somebody who who, who ostensibly wasn't. So it, it, it was always a bit of a challenge, but it was an interesting one to, to navigate as well, because I think most people at school were keen to learn about Hinduism, as was I, you know, because it wasn't really my natural habitat either, because I spent most of my time at school. And I just wanted to learn about this, this, this strange thing that everyone else was doing and what that meant. And and then it was one of those things because my parents kind of came over from India, both of whom were, you know, fairly staunchly religious. Mm. And I think one of my earliest realizations was just the kind of parallels between the religions and the fact that, every, you know, it's almost this, this, this sense that you have, oh, everything kind of comes from the same place. So whether it's Krishna or Jesus, eh, it's basically the same. And, and that's the spirit in which I approached it when I was, when I was, when I was a kid. And uh, I mean, for me, I remember one of the things which actually led me to not believing in God was that I was a huge lover of myths, Greeks and Romans. And yeah. then also and then also we had a book on like sort of like Indian uh, myths. And then when I went to my uh, uh, religious studies class, I was like, oh, no, why on earth are they talking about like these myths as a, as a religion? And then I was just like, OK, for the Greeks and Romans, it's a myth for the in India, it's a religion, but it's wrong. And but Christianity, these are fantastical stories, which are 100% true. And we watch a stupid cartoon, which has a great uh, jingle, great stories, Bible stories, stories that are true. They're yeah. definitely true. They're not a lie. They're true. Well, exactly. This, this was the problem, right? So as I got older, you know, when I was younger, I kind of bought into it. I, I suspect for a similar reason to why I bought into Santa, because you're sort of too young to know to know better. And it was strange how that changed as I got older and how the sense of religiosity, if you will, fell away. But it got replaced by an equal sense of awe and mysticism for the universe and everything else i don't mean the universe i don't mean the universe in the sense that one reads you know books like the secret and assumes that you can manifest things in a way. <laughs> but i just mean the fact that wait you can't do oh, that I, i've tried i've tried <laughs> oh. let me just try now give me one second i manifest an amazing book <gasps> For the listeners, as this is an audio medium, uh, Vikas just uh, picked up his book in what I can only describe as a great piece of product placement. Yes, exactly. You, you mean, yeah, I mean, kudos to me for bringing out a visual aid on, a, on an audio podcast, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was strange. So the mysticism didn't go, it just changed. And I'm, and I'm really glad it is because the reality is far more beautiful, far more mysterious and far more interesting than the myth. 
This is, you've come to exactly the right place. Uh, James, you do our next question. Well, I, I actually want to just follow up on what you just said. That what, When you say the reality is more beautiful than the myth, what reality are you talking about? What do you mean by that precisely? So the physical reality of the universe, the, the fact that every time you sit and contemplate the reality of the universe, it, it sends your mind into that space where you sort of hit the wall of comprehension. And that's actually a really great thing to hit. You know, when your mind gets to the point where it's like, I literally can't comprehend. It's, it's beautiful. So, so, I mean, just one practical example is, you know, we could be completely alone in the universe, which is profound, or we could not, which is also profound. You know, the fact that as I sit here today, I feel like a physical object. I appear to be a physical object, but I'm not. You know, I'm several trillion cells. I'm actually 1.3 times more bacterial than I am human. So in essence, it's not a human speaking to, it's a gigantic colony of, of, of well-fed bacteria. And this is, this is the reality which sounds science fiction, but it isn't. That is the actual reality of our world. And then you dig down even deeper and you realize that actually at a quantum level, you know, we start to experience a breakdown of what we think of as space and what we think of as time. And all of a sudden, the kind of spookiness element comes in where things can exist everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And this isn't science fiction. And yet it could be the most incredible science fiction. And how can you not be wrapped in total awe at the magnificence of that? And in some ways, the absolving of the need for there to have been a creator makes it even more beautiful that something like this could exist in any sense of the word. That's amazing. You just expressed that so beautifully. I really felt the sense of wonder that you have uh, the whole human experience there. I also think that it's really, uh, so again, we bang on about this so much. I want to say we, probably me, but you, you've taken that you, you've taken that information and now what happens is it's conjuring up in feelings in you. And I, I could see you on this podcast and your eyes get a bit brighter. Use this word wrapped, which, you know, you're sort of like, which is a religious word. And, you know, all I would wager that when you're connecting to these ideas, the same parts of your brain are going off that would be uh, sort of, if you put it in an MRI, would be uh, the parts of the brain which are firing off if someone... Uh, contemplated the a religious person contemplated God and it is and, and that's the thing which is pretty much what this podcast is about is like how can we go and uh, you know make sure that those techniques uh, which sort of have often seen been seen as religious and then been pushed to the side how can we actually say no we should reclaim these because like the it, the experiences it can create are so vital to uh, humanity and so vital to what it is to be human. Uh, and, uh, and so that leads us on to the next question, which is what, when you look at religion, what would be the uh, greatest lesson that you think uh, this secularized world, secularizing world could learn from religion? To be honest, I think, I think one of the, the, the biggest lessons, well, I say lesson, but one of the biggest practical activities is gathering. It's, it's having a unified something to gather around on a regular basis to form a sense of community and to form a sense of kinship outside your family. I think that that's kind of critical. And, and also those, the, 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 those, those shared experiences, which are also important. You know, if we go to an incredible concert, we get very close to that. So 
for any of your listeners who might have been to a big music festival, something like Glastonbury, that's, that's about as close as you can get to a religious experience if you've never been to church. And that's really important because we're not designed for the world that we live in. We're just very, very advanced super monkeys that have been thrust into a time machine. And we, it's easy to forget that because we don't want to admit it because to admit that suddenly admits, admits our mortality. And we've spent centuries trying to train ourselves out of admitting such things. If we sit down and realize that that's what we are and we need kinship and we need community and we need communication. And, and these are just essential parts of, of what we need to survive in any healthy sense. And I think that's the big thing that we can learn from religious practice. As for what we could learn from, I guess, the theology or the philosophy of religion, I think perhaps just asking questions. Um, I, I, I'm not a big believer in taking answers for granted. So I'm not a big believer in asking the question, who made this? God did. Right, cool, fair enough. Um, but I do, I do love the way that religious philosophy encourages you to ask questions which may not have an obvious resolved answer. So kind of the, op the opposite to reductivism in a way, the acknowledgement of complexity and the philosophy of complexity. If you want to listen to a great podcast on complexity, check out the last Life on This podcast, Complexity for Dummies. <laughs> that was so well done, Sanderson. I was really impressed. See, see that that was a much slicker pod, uh, product placement than me holding up a visual aid on an audio podcast. I actually had to make a choice because I was going, and if you want the fellowship which comes from religion, Go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership because that's what we do. And I went for the podcast because the other one sounded a bit more mercenary. It's, it's, listen, listen we, we live in mercenary times, my friend. This actually, what I we have up, to do. I actually ended up doing both. Classic. You yeah. did, didn't you? That's amazing, isn't it? And you, <laughs> did that, and you did that with the full tacit consent provided by a slight jab at my own misdemeanor earlier. So. <laughs> You're totally seeing so how I to you. <laughs> yeah, Sanderson's very good at this, yeah. He's a consummate self-promoter. Had I been so you know, had I been so bold, I would have encouraged your listeners to visit thoughteconomics.com. Oh, no. Browse the interviews on there, similarly for inspiration. But, you know, I didn't do that. Okay, obviously. okay. We, okay, we have to break out this loop. Okay, James, take us, get us back on course. <laughs> I want to I wanna ask a deep question. Uh, Vikas, I watched your TEDx talk and I thought it was really powerful. And if people haven't seen it, it's TEDx Manchester, yeah. I think it was. And you speak about your own struggles with anxiety and even suicidality and how you found your way through a really dark period in your life. And it really spoke to me as someone who is on medication for anxiety. And when you said, oh, I wish I'd taken it 10 years ago, I had exactly yeah. the same thought. Um, I, I only got on it in the last Good year man. or so, and it's totally changed my life. So I feel really great about it. So I really connected with what you're saying. But what really stuck with me is at the end, when you said you don't need to have a purpose to be purposeful. And we talk a lot about purpose and meaning and what's, what is your um, life's goal, the ultimate meaning of your life on this podcast, many different people. Can you talk a bit about what you meant when you said you don't need to have a purpose to be purposeful? So also, first of all, kudos for breaking the, uh, the medication barrier. I'm still on medication, have been for years. And if I'm always on it, I kind of don't care because it works. And um, 
And if for any of your listeners that have ever contemplated it, it's, it's just like a little dial that turns down the anxiety. So you're still a little bit anxious. It just doesn't, yes. it just doesn't mortify you on a daily basis. Um, yeah, there was this notion that I think I'd carried with me a lot, which is you're not living a successful life unless you have a purpose or unless you have a big goal or unless you have some plan. And, and I think that, that that's a hell of a big baggage to carry around with us because I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that every life has to have a grand plan or a grand vision or a grand strategy. But I do believe that it's important to find purposeful things that we can do on a day-to-day -day basis. It might be something as small as smiling at someone who looks a bit miserable. It might be that, you know, we, we send a message to someone who we've not spoken to for a while. You know, each of these acts does something net positive for the world as we undertake them. So there's a spectrum of acts from there up to, you know, creating a strategic philanthropic fund or something like that. But but the purposefulness of acts will, you know, be on the balance sheet of the amount of impact you made on the world when, when our time finally comes. And no one else is going to measure it. It's for you to measure it. It's for you to make peace with it because, and I don't truly know what living purposefully means. I think I'm still figuring it out like we all are. But what I can tell you is in my case, the absence of, daily purposeful things was quite a big reason why my life felt sufficiently purposeless where the mental health situation became so so vivid it wasn't that I didn't have things because I had a successful business I was doing big things I was speaking at big conferences I was earning, I was earning lots of money and that was fine but I kept searching for something which was unanswerable and that search almost became such an obsession that it leads you to it leads you to a point that you cannot reason with, which is what's the answer? There isn't one. But then what's the point? Well, maybe there isn't a point. And then things get dark. It really makes me think about like there's, you know, the amount of purpose porn there is out there. And when you were talking about how, you know, everyone's got to stand up and say, this is who I am and this is why I do it. Yes. And, and my, my wife is a community organizer by trade. Yeah. And that's what Barack Obama was tra trained in as well. And that is basically reconfiguring your life as a story of purpose. And, you know, often it's done by, you know, like a company will suddenly change its purpose. And then suddenly Facebook's like, we're all about friends. Or, or sorry, what's the important thing now? We're all about community. Or, and it's like, well, no, we, we've got his emails from the start. You were about rating hot girls and uh, who you wanted to bang well, in a yeah. frat house and because you didn't get invited to parties. Like, but that's, yeah, but that's the values bit, isn't it? Is if, 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 if your actions don't match your values, then, then, then your purpose is kind of irrelevant. Because, you know, like Facebook is a great example. Facebook can protest all it wants to about wanting to be good for the world and help build communities and make friendships. And, you know, Facebook has done some positive things and you know, I'm in touch with people that I wasn't in touch with and uh, that's fine. But they're really just a massive manipulation engine that mines our own data and uses it against ourselves, you know, that, that overwhelms, you know, the assertion of good. So when you combine those together, then whatever value set you assert to have fails. 
you know, and, and I think your, your point about purpose porn is, is really critical because it's turning purpose from being something you seek in an introspective sense of your own journey with yourself in your own life to becoming something which you create to project an image of yourself that you wish you were. And that's really dangerous again, because you're trying to curate a sense of self rather than develop a sense of self. And it might sound semantic, but those two things are, are, are drastically different. I, that reminds me of a uh, quote from, it was maybe Rankin in your book, who said the, the selfie is a lie to present a, the selfie is a, photogra a photograph used for a lie to prevent, present an idealized version of ourselves to ourselves. And uh, uh, which goes, well, yeah, one is deep, uh, but also brings us on to your totally bonkers hobby, which turned into uh, this, uh, this book. And like I said, this blog where you like, just tell us a story of how you yeah. ended up like, uh, the, like interviewing <laughs> Harari of Sapiens fame, uh, interviewing here, I've got just looking at it, Peter Tatchell, Mark Cuban, yeah. like tell us that story because I, yeah, it's utterly bonkers and mind bending. How so, did you do it? <laughs> so, so what happened was, so my first business was in tech. And as part of that first business, we had a publishing platform that we owned and we published online magazines. And I kind of enjoyed it. Right. And then when I got out of that business into the next chapter of life, um, it was at a time where the digital business model of the internet was changing how publishing happened. So instead of publishing being, you know, the long form articles that I used to enjoy, it was becoming a lot more short form, bite-sized content. And I just didn't like that. I like long form. I, I kind of like getting lost in that. So I literally thought, well, maybe I could write something. You know, so I just set up a blog on Blogger. It was thoughteconomics.blogspot.com. Oh, that makes I me just, nostalgic just no. to hear that. Oh. And, and, I just, and I just started interviewing people I knew, like nobody particularly famous, nobody big, mm. just, just people that I'd met who were interesting. And I was like, well, let me just talk to you. And I don't know why, but there was this, this thought I'd had at some point, which is, well, there's kind of a big wide world out there. Who else, who else could you speak to? And I managed to get a hold of Jimmy Wales that started Wikipedia. And he gave me a chance. He gave this little unknown nothing of a blog a chance. And, you know, site traffic went up. And, but more importantly, I was like, this is kind of fun. And I was like, well, who can I get next? And again, just, just pure luck of timing and persistence, you know, Fast forward three a month, three months, four months, and I had an hour phone call, but with Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> and that's wild. It was, yeah, no, do you know what? It really literally is because he was my second major interview. And, <laughs> and though, though, those two individuals had, had the generosity of their time to give this nothing little blog a chance, right? And, and I'm, I'll, I'll always be forever grateful for that, you know, always. But that was profound. And, and, and just there was this kind of, you know, drug-like high, I would guess, um, of... Tell me what it was like. I'll be able to confirm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel it's... very, very good and want to do it more? Yeah. And it was just <laughs> this amazing sense of this is amazing. You know, these are some of the most 
incredible minds on the planet, people that have done just incredible things. And to have that one-to-one -one time with them, it was just, it was amazing. And that just started this whole journey of, of, of discovery with it. And, but it was always a side gig. It was always something I did just when I had time to do it around my businesses. But that was in 2007, right? So, you know, as, as that law of compound interest says, you keep saving and eventually you get a big amount. And that was in 2007. And just incrementally doing these interviews as and when I had time, fast forward to today, you know, there's this massive body of content there, which eventually got picked apart into a book. But it was just, it was just because I was curious about these people. You know, like, for example, you know, what is it about Maya Angelou that meant she did what she did? What is it about, you know, Harari that means that he sees the world the way he does? Because we're all just the same. We're all, we all pop out fundamentally the same. Yet some people go off on this trajectory that means that the rest of the billions of us change how we operate. And, and I just really want to understand what that something is or, or, or what that secret source is and encapsulate that in these conversations. When we get round to putting this on uh, the old YouTube, which is a permanent project, one of those projects we're like, one day put the insane amount of videos we've got on YouTube. Yeah. The people who are listening right now will be able to see the look on James's and I face, which is just slack jawed amazement. And like, what for you were the highlights of the people that you uh, you spoke to? And just really like, I don't know, just dive in. Like, so in, um... there's so many, and 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 I don't mean that to sound like a sort of a fob off response because I'm aware that it could do, and I'm aware from being on the opposite side of interviews that when somebody says, "Oh, there's so many," it can sound a bit dismissive. But when when you're talking to people who so, okay, let me rephrase. Every single one of those conversations on its own would be a once in a lifetime conversation. And I, 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 I'm humble enough to always approach it like that. So, you know, I get an hour on the phone with Noam Chomsky. Just that one conversation alone would be enough. Like, why would I need to speak to anybody else? That, that one conversation is profound enough. So there's definitely this highlight of speaking to people who've influenced my own thinking and, and just being able to ask them the questions, which I think will interest them for a change, right? But then every now and again, you end up on a phone call which changes you. So I'll give you one example. I'll, I'll give you a few. You finally got to the point of the question, Vikash. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was really excited about all of it. I don't Is know your interviewing you. style less confrontational? Significant. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, I didn't want to let your listeners down without a preamble. Okay. All right. We've you know, I, done the full. I, 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 I wanted to will your <laughs> listeners into the into that sense of existential anxiety of get on with it. And, Come on, Vikas. And so now I will put your listeners out of there existential podcast angst <laughs> by revealing conversation number one of these said conversations it'd be, nil. So it'd be it'd be nil um you see you'll feel sad about laughing in a minute because it'd be nil was an auschwitz survivor Ooh. and yeah see told you and i i there was this strange period where i did a whole series of pieces around conflict and war and the role wars played and we can't really think about modern day conflict without considering World War II and in particular the Holocaust. And 
Ibby Nil survived Auschwitz. She didn't talk about it for most of her life. And only when she was in her 80s did she start to even acknowledge what had happened. And, you know, we talked about lots of things on this phone call. Um, and But one of the questions I'd asked her was, what did you feel towards your captors? And she kind of paused and she just said, well, and I, for I forgave them. They were doing their job. And that changed me because in that moment, I realized doesn't matter what happens to me, I can't harbor any hate for anything, right? So, so that was one really profound moment. And then, you know, there, there, was, there, was, there was plenty of others, you know, so. Sorry, my I feel that I need to take a break there because you really paid off in the end. You're, you're absolutely nailing this as an interview subject, Shah. <laughs> I just decided, I thought you. I'd, I'd V-cast you too much, so I went with the surname. But that's it's, it's amazing. Fine. It's fine, that's, Shah, Shah's good. Uh, the... I don't know, but particularly in this world where we're living in at the moment, where we do have this desire to call out enemies and like people are unforgivable, there's people are gone, gone and put outside the pale. It's something which I really think about. And I, I saw a, uh, there's a Goethe quote, there is no, there's no crime in the world that, uh, which I could not commit. And, and it's this idea that like, if we were different people in different situations, who am I to say that I would have been the person who, you know, wasn't getting involved in uh, Auschwitz, like, like or whatever, what, whichever situation it might be. And, but at the same time, like we live in an environment where that seems to be antithetical to who we are. Like, but we, we, we've never had our morality challenged in that way. You know, we, 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 we are probably the first generation of people that have never had to live through a really serious conflict. And so we've not had our, our real actual safety challenged in the way that previous generations did practically every generation. You know, we've not been in a situation where we're reduced to nothing apart from our flesh and bones, not even identity anymore. We've not been in a situation where we have to flee because people are literally bombing our houses. And, and that's when you kind of discover what it's all about. You know, I mean, outside thought economics, you know, we, we help to grow a, a global uh, charity called In Place of War. So within Place of War, we go into conflict zones. So places that are immediately just coming out of conflict. And we work with people to, you know, do peace building and to rebuild their lives. And, and this is a real constant thing, right? So you go to the north of Uganda on the border with South Sudan. Uganda only came out of civil war about seven or eight years ago. And you're meeting people who committed atrocities. You're meeting people that committed horrible acts. And you, you realize that the, 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 the person that you're enjoying dinner with and having a really nice conversation with is probably a murderer. What are you gonna do? We're going to projects in Colombia where you've now got someone who's doing amazing things in the community, but they're covered in tattoos and each of those tattoos indicates an, an atrocity they committed. What are you going to do? This is this is the this is the fact about humanity: is all of us are capable of doing those things. All of us are capable of of, of doing, you know, heinous things. But we, in the nice privileged world that we are in, for all the bad that we might feel, we've never had that fundamental sense of human identity challenge that you have in a conflict or a real bad natural disaster. Yeah, it reminds me of that. Though you did that interview with uh, Diane Goodall, where she was talking about how surprised she was about finding war in chimpanzees. Like, yeah, you know, we think that we're passing around, you know, like making a little twig and getting in some ants and you know, getting some hijinks. But it's like, oh no, they go to war and they kill each other. They're often very not nice. And and yeah, and I sometimes I got, I think sometimes people really forget that about humans. 
you know, and really, and it's very, and it's easy to think that those values are like totally either sort of like totally antithetical or also totally useless. Whereas you actually want people to be able to get back in touch with those if you're threatened, right? Like that becomes like that, that the warrior, the the warrior in a in a war suddenly becomes quite a handy archetype for people to be able to connect with. But but the chimp's an interesting example, isn't it? Because as Jane Goodall kind of realized herself, that they only cooperate if there's a good reason to, and the ones that don't cooperate tend to be the first ones to get killed because they've got nothing to live for, and so they just kind of go a bit crazy. So it's it's but it's the same with humans, you know. The, the, the members of our human tribe of the 7 billion of us, the ones who don't have a purpose to live for are the ones who are most easily radicalized or the ones who commit the atrocities or the ones who, who fall into antisocial acts by our, by our standards. So, so I guess, you know, we, we can see our behavior reflected in them and they could probably see their behavior reflected in us. And, and it's something so common. You know, I've interviewed quite a few of the Nobel Peace Prize winners and a lot of them- What? No big deal. But, but a lot of them have that same notion, right? A lot of them talk about the fact that to build peace, you've got to find a purpose. You've got to show people what is the reason to cooperate and what is the reason to notice a shared humanity. So it is, it's, it, it is profound. And we are profoundly simple in that way. And however complex these conversations can get, we have to just bring it back to that. Yeah, that, that shared, uh, w w I mean, that's one of the reasons that we had this conversation to get into the shared purpose. Uh, James, do you have a question? I do. I, I could firstly listen to you talk all day about this stuff because this is truly astonishing. Um, I'm wondering about, you mentioned your chat with Maya Angelou. What, tell us about so, that. Like that was one that just came up. <laughs> so. My Angelou. So the reason I'd, I'd wanted to interview her is just, you know, she, she's one of the greatest icons of civil rights, right? You know, she was on the steps when Martin Luther King made that speech. She's a great writer and thinker. And, and I just thought, wow, like, wouldn't it be great to speak to her? And eventually I, I fundamentally bullied her press office into giving me some time. And um, so can you uh, can you just like what did you how persistent were you? I uh, would just like so, to know. So I tend this. to I tend to persist unless somebody says no or completely Good ghosts. Rules. So if somebody ghosts me, I'll still keep going until they say no. Right. And but with her press office kept replying and, you know, more fool them for doing so because <laughs> I kept persisting. And, and eventually they gave me in inverted commas 10 minutes on the basis that I would stop emailing because I've now had my interview. And in the end, I had like an hour, which was amazing. But wow. um, she, she has this real unique understanding of arts and words and their meaning. You know, one of the questions I'd asked her is why do we write? And she said, well, for the same reason we climb a mountain, just because it's there and we can. And I, and I just thought, wow, like it, it's that weird <laughs> paradox where it allows an act of expression to be simultaneously purposeful and without any purpose, mm. right? Because climbing a mountain exists in that exact intersection, right? You climb a mountain because you can, which is the purpose of your act, but climbing a mountain has no purpose. It's one of those things. So, and that I think is just a really interesting understanding of why art exists and why literature exists and why poetry exists and 
And I really took that away from that conversation with her was that depth of wisdom about why art, literature and poetry exist and why they're so important for us. Makes me wonder if you ask my Angie, what, why, why do we write? What, why do you interview? Like what you, you talked a bit about your curiosity that drew you to do this, but now it's clearly become a passion. It's filled a book. You must spend hours preparing and getting people to speak. What, what is it that really makes you want to spend your time James, this way? James, well done for not using the word harassing, but uh, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Why do you harass all these famous people until they, so, until they give so I, can, I can give you two answers to this, right? There's, well, there's three answers. There's, first, there's the first answer, which is, you know, the, the one that I don't like to admit, which is it feels kind of good. Like there is definitely an ego factor associated with it. And, you know, I don't want to shy away from that because it is kind of cool and it is kind of novel and it is, it's the ego factor goes without saying. The, the second fact is I'm just really, I just really want to get under the skin of how things work and how the world works. And that's why I kind of set the remit now of trying to find out, find the people that have shaped the world to be how it is now and the ones that are shaping the world in the future. And the more I dig into it, the more questions are open. So I'll do an interview with somebody, but then that opens like a whole nother set of, set of topics. And like this weird fractal, it's like a weird fractal of intellectual discovery and it just keeps going. So that's the second one. And then the third one is, is really, is, it's less easy to explain, but I feel like this fills a gap in me somehow. And I don't know why, and I don't know what it is, but I kind of feel I need it. And I don't know how else to explain that. But to those, I think are the three reasons why I do it. I sort of want to get into the classic one. Well, what have you learned about the world? But I'm, then there's a bit of- Not a lot. Just, which is, <laughs> well, that, that nailed it then, got that one. Yeah. And then I can also do the other one, which is, what do you think that gap is? Like, what's the, what do you need from it? I'd love to know. I've, 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 I've kind of thought about this because it's an ex it's a huge amount of time and effort. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't come without stress. It comes with, you know, with the rejection of the fact that probably for every interview that I get, there's probably 20 that said no. And every rejection kind of stings a bit, of course, you know. Um, but I don't truly what I know, what, I don't truly know what that gap is. I think, you know, and, and let, let's, if we, if we, if we get a bit kind of psychoanalytical here, I think some of it was almost this notion that I'd always had growing up of, of not being very good at stuff. Like I wasn't very academic. I wasn't very good at sports. I wasn't like good at stuff, but I went to a very elite school where everyone was very good at things and I was kind of not. And, and I think I've, I've never been able to really make peace with that little, little boy inside me and uh, not in a creepy way um, that says, oh, you're not very good at things. You know, it's, it's almost, it's always there. And, and that kind of keeps me pushing. And maybe, maybe I'm feeding that in a certain way by, 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 by pursuing this. Or, or maybe there's just some other void that I haven't discovered, which, which keeps needing filling. You know, it's, I don't know what it is, but there's so many things and so many indulgences in life where you just don't know why you do it. You just mm. kind of do. If you were given the option between having that need met for good, the need which causes you to have sacrificed so much time and to have all this rejection, uh, that could just be filled, you know, Thanos style, click of the fingers, or else you get to keep on doing the thing that you're doing, 
which would you choose? Well, I'd carry it on. Like, no doubt. And this is the weird thing. Like, if we, if we, if we go back to the kind of um, the, the anxiety and depression journey for a bit, I'm really glad I had it. And I hate to say it. I, I wouldn't be where I am had I not had it, had my, had my anxiety and depression because they fueled me because I was so desperate and happy. I just fueled forward and kept driving. So I'd found a way of working out of it and it was very beneficial. And, 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 and also the, the total destruction of your sense of self that comes with that level of anxiety and depression returns you to life with an odd sense of humility. You know, when you've been at a point in life where your life is worth so little that you're prepared to end it, you know, the, the humility that you bring to the rest of your interactions after that is, is kind of nice. Like, it, it gives you a different appreciation for the world and for for each other and for conversations. And so I wouldn't want to take that away because I wasn't a big fan of the person I was before that. A real head scratch that I have around this is that my, so my mum died when I was young and and at the set, like the reason I do something called the Lifefulness Project and Sunday Assembly was a celebration of life, my previous uh, charity and my first stand-up show was called Another Heartbreaking but Ultimately Life-Affirming Show About Death. That's what goes through me like a stick of rock is that that wouldn't be there if my mum had survived, I don't think, not in that way that it... Uh, that it is at the moment and so then my little one is like the my little sort of puzzle in my head is i would the me i am at the moment would be dead if my mum had lived <laughs> because like all the the whole passage of and and all the parts i love like about me and all these things that i accept like and have given me what is you know access to i believe like this appreciation of the world which i just wouldn't have had otherwise yeah, that wouldn't be there. But greatness doesn't come from the from the middle, does it? Like if we think about that kind of sine wave, that kind of chart of life, and if you assume that the horizontal axis means everything's fine, and then the curve above the line means you're really, really happy, and the curve below the line means you're really, really sad, until you're hitting the extremes on either side, you don't really get anything interesting. You know, the greatest art and the greatest artists and a lot of the artists that I've interviewed, it was the extremes of happiness or sadness that generated their greatest works. It was the extremes of sadness from people who felt oppressed that led to their acts of greatness in overcoming that or fighting. So, so I, I think for, for most of us as humans, unless we've experienced something profoundly good or something profoundly bad, we're unlikely to do things which are interesting or outside the realms of what we would normal, normally do in life. Mm. So whilst I wouldn't wish profound sadnesses on anybody, I think those profound sadnesses bring with them benefits if we're prepared to look at them differently. Also, they're coming for you. Of course they are. <laughs> They're going to happen. Sorry. But this is also where this kind of happiness porn thing is really damaging for society because there's so many books that are trying to get you to seek happiness or find happiness or, you know, go to a happy place or things like this. That's just not realistic. You know, I, I've, I've interviewed enough billionaires to know that money doesn't bring you happiness. It just makes your life shinier, right? It's... It's, it's not about that. And if you keep seeking that, you're never going to win. 
it is it's like you said it's coming for you death is coming from for all of us sadness is coming for all of us pain is coming for all of us but so is a bit of happiness and a bit of contentment i'm really struck by this conversation because firstly you, you talking with sanderson has has got something out of Sanderson that I've never heard you say about your own identity and how it's shaped by your own experience. It's very, very powerful. So just thanks for that, because that helps me understand him better. I I am wondering, you've spoken to so many amazing people, and you must have learned something about the art of speaking to people, about how you get people to open up and what questions to ask and how you kind of dig in. Do you Do you have and how people work i suppose from that do you have things to say about that so so yeah it, it was kind of trial and error right because i'm not a journalist or anything it's, it's, it's not my it's not my training to do interviews but so some of it is just about well there's, there's two things that i've kind of learned i guess because i've now done something like 430 of these different interviews over the years and the first thing is to ask people about what interests them not what interests me because like <laughs> why are they going to light up about something that I care about? You only light up about something that you care about. So I'll try and figure out what, what's going to interest them to talk about and ask them about that, irrespective of what I really want to know. You know, like, for example, I'm not going to sit there and ask an astronaut, oh, what's it like to be on the moon? Because I want to know that. They've been there. They already know the answer. And the, the, the second part of it is, is it is stressful and you need to just remove that stress as quickly as you can. So you need to try and figure out in those first, first few seconds how to humanize yourself and how to make it feel like it's a conversation with mates and not an interview. And, and just prompt them where necessary as well, because that's, that's totally fine. Allow pauses. But one thing that I've always really enjoyed is just asking big, difficult questions because it stretches your mind. So... I'll give you an example. So Brian Eno, incredible artist, brilliant human. Um, we, we did an interview not long ago and um, I just asked him the question right at the beginning of the interview of, well, why does art exist? And he literally just chatted for like an hour and a half and we just riffed off that one question. Whereas most interviews with Brian will be a journalist going, well, in 1985, you did this album. Tell me about that. Why does he care? Why is, is that interesting him right now? Probably not, not unless he's promoting it. So, so that's kind of how I approach it. It doesn't always work. You know, there's plenty of occasions where you do an interview and it's just a bit naff or there's plenty of occasions where somebody's just not feeling it. But in general, that, that's how I try and approach it. So how are we doing? <laughs> well, listen, you, <laughs> Don't you, 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 tell, you tell me, you're, you're the interviewers. I am merely a guest in your humble digital domain. The, uh, well, so I tell you what, I am going to tell you that you're doing great. And then I'm going to oh, use shucks, your thanks. little powers against you, Mr. Shah. Uh, what would be the question you would most likely, most like to be asked? And uh, what's the, your answer to it? Like, what question is really in your head at the moment? Like, what's something that's <sighs> really like... Well, there's several questions in my head right now. I mean, the first one is like, where's my cat? Because I've not seen him. No, not bit. that was... one. The big ones. The big oh, you ones. Mean, you mean come the more on. profound questions yeah, than that? Yeah, come on. Um, what's the thing which, what's the question which is really up inside you right now? There's a really weird one, which has been puzzling me. Um, and I've been thinking about doing a, a few articles about it, if I can find the right people to interview. But it's like, what's death? 
and you know, like lately, sometimes I've, I've just tried to picture it, not, not in a bad macabre way, but in a way of trying to imagine, well, well, what is it? You know, what does it mean to, to, to no longer exist? And is it possible to even contemplate that? Is it, or, or, you know, because it's one of those big things that is gonna to happen to all of us at some stage and naturally through the pandemic, you know, every day we're confronted by the death lottery and the numbers and this kind of eternal, excuse my French, but pissing contest around death numbers, which I think is also deeply unhelpful sometimes. But yeah, that, that, that's one that's really on my mind at the moment because I can't decide whether it's beautiful or not. I can't decide whether it is finite, whether, whether there is a finality to it. You know, I, I don't know. And it's one, it's one which I'm trying to tackle in as much of a scientific way as possible. So I don't start to get into the realms of, you know, talking to spirit summoners or anything like this. But even the science around it is fairly mechanical. It talks of, well, first this happens and then you stop breathing and then blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, there's very little in, in modern culture which deals with the philosophical implications of, of, of death as they relate to who we are. And it seems to be something which society's lost because, you know, going back to any ancient civilization or even any pre-enlightenment civilization, there was quite a, a strong philosophical understanding of death as much as there was a philosophical understanding of birth. And that seems to be one which we've lost because we've decided that we're immortal and act accordingly. So what do you think the arguments are of it? Like, is it totally fine? Are you saying, is it totally fine or is it not final? What, what, what are the different sort of uh, strands? Well, I mean, the reality down? is it is final, right? I mean, un unless somebody has some overwhelming proof otherwise, I, I think it's difficult for any of us to assume that it isn't. But what does that mean? You know, this is the thing. If it is final, does it come down to that similar question that we raised right at the beginning of this conversation, which is we may or may not be alone in the universe and each of those outcomes is profound. Death may or may not be final. Either way, it's profound. There was a, so the first version of Sunday Assembly, people would, but like the, my, biographical my description of it and i always forget what i've said on this podcast before and what i haven't uh is people just were like yeah it talks about death a bit too much maybe concentrate more on the celebrating life aspect and for me i'm like no it's the looking at death which is the sort of like input like gives life like which is magnificent in and of itself, like takes it into some like transcendental level, just one by the comparison between what nothing is and now. Like right now, compared to the absolute, like that, that sort of little blip on every single register of your consciousness right now, every sense, nothing. And this sort of orgy of experience, this psychedelic reality where I can move my hands and provoke a thought and I can feel the rustle of wool on my skin and I'm speaking to Vikas and James in St. Louis and every single little moment can be exploded out into an infinite fractal and that it is, that's what it is to be alive every single second what on earth is that? We are in a big fuck fest of our senses and then nothing and the nothingness doesn't reduce it, but instead seems to, you know, go and burnish it even further is certainly how I fucking react to it. 
I mean, this is the thing. Maybe, maybe we needed to forget about death to allow ourselves to become compliant enough to live because the finality of dying would give a different level of significance to everything. And that might make it difficult to exist. It might make it almost impossible to exist on a day-to-day basis because you know, the, 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 the death bit is not resolved that it happens at 3.21 a.m. on January the 9th, 2054. Although it'd be kind of funny if mine actually now was in retrospect, hey? I mean, but, it would be hilarious. But we don't know that. It could, it, it could, be, it could be tomorrow. <laughs> We'd all love, And so yeah. this may be the last conversation that you have. It's not a threat, by the way. It's just a... <laughs> <laughs> um, I can so, see how those press officers react uh, to yeah. you after a while. <laughs> But imagine how difficult it would be to live if you knew that everything you do could be the last time you do it. It just would be, you know, unsalvageably difficult to live because you would be in this constant state of ecstatic morbidity. So maybe we needed to forget about it because otherwise we couldn't live and cooperate in a way which was sufficient to build the society we've built. And sometimes though it comes, at least for me, it kind of comes over you. I I sometimes lie. This is a bit embarrassing to to admit, but I lie next to my husband, and I just he's always asleep way earlier than I am, and I just kind of I want to hold on to him, you know, because I think this is not going to last forever. There's going to be a time when one of us at least is not going to be around. This is limited, and it just it settles on me like this huge weight of responsibility and it is a lot and i can see what you mean like it feels like too much to be dealing with that uh and if you had to deal with it all the time i mean that would be yeah and this is the thing like maybe this is why artists end up being the ones who are taken from us really too soon because sometimes artists are the ones who haven't forgotten it and they're the ones who experience that you know, psychedelic fuck fest as you feel, which I think, <laughs> frankly, if your first rock album is not called that, then, then there's no justice in this world. Um, but maybe artists are the only people that actually get that and get that full experience. And because it is so overwhelming, maybe that's why they have to numb themselves with, you know, drugs or whatever it is that eventually take them from us. You know, it's, it is, it is, concurrent with my experience of interviewing them that the artists i've spoken to are the only ones who seem to really be able to communicate that true um connection with living with an understanding of life in a way beyond the mechanical and chemical processes that we are i i I totally see that that can be one of the uh like one of the reactions like a perfectly uh sort of uh you know, like sometimes I think I just want to go and sit on a beach or on a bench, like not even on a beach, like somewhere and just go and just be and just go and like have, you know, surf that surf existence for existence, contemplating itself. And it would be amazing. Uh, but I sometimes think that when I'm like, my son's screaming, uh, but but even even if it wasn't, even if there wasn't discomfort in my that. life. So, so imagine that then for a moment, because sometimes the contemplation bit I think is unnecessarily connected with spirituality, right? But imagine just the pure brass tack science of it, the unlikelihood. So the statistical, tiny, tiny statistical chance that we exist in the first place, right? The tiny, well, actually let's go back a step. 
the 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 sheer unlike unlikelihood of any life existing, then how unlikely it is that any of that life turns into anything of significance, right? And then imagine that we are now these creatures that have emerged out of fundamentally nothing that have developed the ability to contemplate our origins in the universe. Like if that isn't taking you into the territory of being absolutely mindfucked, then nothing is. But that that's all part and parcel of it. And that, that, that there's a reason <sighs> that this tingles. is called the Lifefulness Project is because I, to my own personal, is it like the, the contemplation of life itself is something which uh, gives you access to the like the the transcendence and like some people say like why is transcendence helpful well actually transcendence is not only a good thing in and of itself when people reflect on their lives they say those moments when they connected to that transcendence feeling of being alive are the periods they look back on so even if it was just that in and of itself but it's also the thing where if we collectively feel it then people club together and they build cathedrals and they help the poor and and then there's a thing of like the actual the benefit that you get from these experiences which is linked to creativity and productivity and flow and all of these things that like life itself is the fucking game but then but then it's, it's, it's you know it comes down to what i said before right about that wave around that positive and negative because we're talking here about those experiences on the upside of the wave, those amazing transcendental experiences, but people are bound together by the opposite too. They're bound together by being in the tsunami. They're bound together by being there when the earthquake hit, when the twin towers went down. So the experiences at the extreme of humanity, the experiences that are difficult for us to comprehend or make sense of have this binding fact, don't they? Well, I would say but like, that's one totally true uh, again, but that is so often when doing this and James, I'm sure you'll have had it at the ethical society as well when and it will have been a challenge you will have faced as someone who's oh, the universe is wonderful, but you've gone and stared depression in the face and suicidality. James, great way of not saying suicide. I've never used that word before. You said it at the start. That's a real word. I know it is. <laughs> oh, OK. I'm impressed by your vocabulary, yes. mate. Well, That's great. Suicidality. The uh, and and that actually there's often the sort of mental models that people have used in religion are sort of also useful in this case because you'll have a christian person be like oh how can god be good when there's a tsunami and then people have to say well actually like they you know god can be good but sad things still happen and i think that like even again one of the miraculous things about life is that like it wouldn't be life unless bad things could happen because you know, one of the uh, the thing, if we can strive for things which are meaningful, and if we recognise what the universe is like, and if we know that our like security is quite fragile, then we're going to get into these situations which are really unbearably hard because our mind is a hodgepodge, a hack. And then, like, it, the question is, is like, does thinking that life is amazing help you or hinder you in those situations? And I would say that it's something which like, if you can love life in and of itself with nothing attached to it, then it can be a source of strength when you have nothing. And it can go and change your relationship to that pain. If you think, well, actually I'm part of an overall show, which is great. This part of the show fucking sucks. Yeah, but the nothing, the nothing bit isn't a bad thing, right? Like 
Like we talk about, like we talk about a bad thing happened, but who says it's bad? It's just a thing that happened. The universe doesn't care. The tsunami doesn't care. The earthquake doesn't care. The earthquake wasn't doing a bad thing. It just, a thing happened arbitrarily, which to us is bad. It's, it's bad for us, not bad to us, right? The tsunami is bad for us. The pandemic is bad for us, but it's not bad to us because that implies some level of malintent. And actually, it's, it's a weirdly liberating thing to realize that, you know, the earth and the universe are not, they're not these anthropomorphized things that have some kind of intent. They just are. And they're just these ancient things that we have no real understanding or control over, but we do have control over our immediate little tiny corner of said universe where we can do things positively or negatively because we have the cultural con concept to, to do that. I'm really struck by something you were talking about a little earlier about how we can sort of, the way it came into my mind was that we can ride on the wave of experience and feel the amazingness of being alive and that we have this one awesome life, but it can also be overwhelming and we can kind of crash into it and it can crash over us, but that that connects us too to each other. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, obviously it's something that you've experienced yourself, but I'm kind of intrigued by that. How, how, how can it not when, you know, there's that notion that whenever something happens, you kind of feel you want to share it with someone, right? So when you see something amazing or something really bad happens, you know, the first instinct is to talk to someone about it, you know? So there's something built within us where that's part of the experience of being human. And, and, and having a shared memory of a shared event, they're like markers in the sand for that story of life, right? Where were you when this happened? Or wasn't it amazing when that happened? Or don't you remember when this other thing took place, right? The markers in the sand. And if we don't have those markers in the sand, then how do we know what, what, what story to weave through it, right? Like, like what kind of a sad life if you had none of those? which is why sometimes you create arbitrary ones, right? So you might create a celebration and religions are very good at this where life's gonna be a bit miserable. So let's put in something over here, just something <laughs> to look forward to, right? But, but that's what they are, they're markers. And we need markers to bind ourselves together with each other, but just, just also to, to navigate our own way through. It's almost like walking through a house as a kid and leaving a you know, piece of string behind you so you know where you've been. I love that image there because I think there's also something in it. There's a, uh, which I say what is just, it doesn't link to a great poem. It is a theme explored in a great poem. The th uh, th is it called The Thread or The Thread You Follow? And it's just, it is about us, you know, how often we, we look back on our life and we go and see the thread which is going through our life. And it might not even be clear to other people but actually there was this sort of thread that we're following through life and there's a... Yeah, you know. but this is a, but it's a, it's a consistent thing with interviews, right? Where you, you can interview people in their life, you know, pe people who can give you lots of great life advice, but it's just because they now can see their lives in retrospect. They didn't have a strategy at the time. They were just getting on with it. You know, it's, it's, it's hindsight. It's like the classic thing and the hindsight is 2020 vision. But I, I, I feel like, 
knowing what those markers are sometimes is useful. Like trying to understand what were the moments in your life that did change you, you know, where you had that sudden death of a friend or you had that moment of being inspired by something or that incredible experience somewhere. And then what led you to the next one and the next one? Because those are the kind of things that you buffet against, right? That, that's kind of what makes it worthwhile. Otherwise, you, you've, got, you've got nothing. I think that that is a great place to end because that is a, well, should I tell you there's a bit of me, I was like, I'm going to make, but in the, in the Sunday Assembly community, we're going to do that as an exercise in the lifefulness community. <laughs> yeah, look back in your life, go and look at the, the significant events. That is great. And uh, so before we wrap up, I you did a minor sort of promotion of your book before, but like, I think you can get a really big juicy <laughs> one in now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to know. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that. No, but I, you know, I just, I just would if if people are interested in reading my interviews with, you know, some of the people that have shaped the world, then do go online, Google Thought Economics. The book is available worldwide now, and um, I just really hope people enjoy it. So do check it out, and if you enjoy it, send me a tweet or an Instagram or something, and just let me know what you think of it. Oh, well, look, thanks so much, Vikas. This has been an absolute delight. James and I are going to have Total a pleasure. sort of debrief about, we love all of our interviews, but this one just felt a dip, little bit different. And that is probably entirely down to you in some way we haven't yet fathomed. But what I am going to say, Vikas, is I have fathomed that you are a great guy who can really go and think around different ideas. When I delved into your book, I saw that your questions were going everywhere. I was like, this guy's so interesting. Is he going to be able to maintain that where in an interview is this just piecing it together and he's just got no but you, you have not just maintained it you've exceeded it and what's even better is that the amazing ideas are all held into this wonderful vcash body this wonderful spirit For this now. wonderful mind which has gone and blessed us and so i bless you and thank you and wish thank you all you the best for the you. rest of your journey thank you i really appreciate your time I really appreciate the invitation and, you know, I, I never take things like this for granted and I really appreciate you asking me to come on today and thank you. A pleasure. So James, this is our little conversational debrief. What did you take from that? Wow. That one, I think, was a really profound one, Sanderson. I just loved his sense of the preciousness and complexity of life. Like there was a feeling of awe and wonder he when you said he talked about being wrapped at the universe i just think it's such a beautiful word to use to talk about experience but also you know how i was just really struck by that idea that sometimes it doesn't all go right and life can really crash down on you but those moments also bring us together with each mm. other that was really profound for me yeah that is uh, that was a great point i i'm sort of reflecting on why uh, it why i had so much fun in it i always have fun in them maybe this is what i'm like at the end of all of them uh, but uh, i don't know if i took my lead from him and just asked him what are you interested in and then we went in a slightly uh, sort of like on a direction we didn't expect which was great and that seemed to be really live because we were all just sort of chipping in and just sort of going for it so that's uh that's interesting for the future i don't know if there's necessarily the people listening to this podcast are gonna go well that's a great takeaway oh maybe the takeaway is uh sometimes when you don't go know where you're going you'll have the greatest conversations 
but <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, and so. then uh, the, and I guess there's also something just about his, like his own story of someone just going, choosing to do something and it being, and whilst his is particularly noteworthy because it is famous people, I think it's really true of anyone who goes and does, like that could be a community garden. That could be something else which you go and put love and care into and you dedicate your life to. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's another thing. Uh, another thing in my head. And good to chat about death. Yes, you love that, don't you? It's your favourite topic. It is, it is coming for all of us and it is, and right now we're alive. That's really the equation. <laughs> Uh, James is where I say goodbye to you. Hey, hope you liked that as much as I did. It was, uh, it was wonderful. It's quite, it's quite good. Now we've got a bit more of a backlog of podcasts, which means I'm not always sort of recording these things two days after they happen. So it's really nice to go and listen to them again. And VCAS is an absolutely blinding guest. What a tale. Uh, but it is Wednesday evening. Uh, anyone who's been listening to this will know that I'm deep in sort of website stuff uh, in terms of the lifefulness project uh, it's amazing how if you want to go and build community nowadays it involves hardly any sort of speaking to people but loads and loads of technical things and you know marketing automation and other stuff like that which is amazing because you get to do loads of good things with it but uh, not why i got into it and uh, what else has been happening here yeah just really loving the uh, the small groups. We've got another one tonight. That's the Life on This 101 course. And yeah, one thing that I did, uh, I think I mentioned that, you know, uh, I, the first time round of something, you know, I'm just going to get something out a bit late uh, in, uh, you know, <laughs> I've got ADHD. I also take full responsibility for my actions, but it's never going to be my strength. And so I, when offered, one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions to everyone who was on it because I really wanted to make them uh, get the most out of it. And I've just had some really fascinating conversations and it's, yeah, really wonderful to go. And I think one of the, the biggest lessons is how people are already sort of doing spiritual practices or doing activities which go and are meaningful to them. That's obvious. Like one of the most... Uh, impactful things uh, what a word is it actually like what happens when you start to recognize that and when you're like oh okay well i every single morning i jump in a pond and it's like oh well actually there's a uh, lots of sort of spiritual traditions where people use cold water for uh, mortification and uh, okay how can you go and help make whatever ritual or activity you're doing how can you go and make that more meaningful and it's quite intriguing as you sort of look at like the minutiae of day-to-day -day activities and go through them with people and go, oh, well, what happens if you uh, uh, have an intention that you set whenever you're brushing your dog's hair or whatever it might be? And it's uh, been really satisfying, again, seeing the, the theory uh, hit the hit the road, the rubber hit the road, the theory hit the people, the practice hit the theory, whichever way around it is. Uh, so that's been satisfying. And uh, yeah, that's uh, probably about it. If you want to get involved, go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership. 
uh, ofs. We're yeah, we're just relaunching the small groups, so it'd be wonderful to have you involved. Then what else is there? That's about it. Uh, thanks so much for listening this far, you brave cats who make it to the end. Uh, thanks to James for being such a great co-host. Thanks to Mavs for. Uh, doing the editing and thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for the music that you're listening to right now. Bye!